I'm Roger, and this is Two Vets Upstate. We've got a great episode for you today. Our guest is State Assembly Member Pamela Hunter of New York's 128th Assembly District. She is an Army veteran and chair of the State Assembly Subcommittee on Women Veterans, and should be noted she is the only woman veteran in the entire state legislature. Uh, We'd also like to remind you to submit a rating and review on whatever platform you're using to listen to our show today. We have gotten a few of these already, so thank you. Uh, Taking the minute it requires to submit helps us reach a wider audience, which is exactly what we're trying to do here. And then finally, we're on Patreon, and your support here can really go a long way. Uh, It takes money to make a great podcast that's worth listening to, and your contribution can help us bring on better guests, tune up our sound, and reach more veterans. Andrea, uh, what are you eating and or drinking today? So I know I'm usually drinking something that is local and alcoholic, but it is 11 o'clock in the morning and it is a work day for me, even though that's totally no excuse. I could totally be having a Bloody Mary right now. <laughs> I am drinking coffee. I did just get back from, I was traveling for 27 hours yesterday and I'm honestly, quite frankly, just happy that I had a full night's sleep. So <laughs> it's coffee for me. What about you, Roger? Yeah, my notes here, I made a note to drink some Omegang uh, Pale Sour from Omegang Brewery in Cooperstown, uh, which I guess is not too far from where you're from, uh, but it is 11. I do have to go to work eventually, um, so I will be drinking that tonight while I am editing this podcast uh, before we put it out on Tuesday. So yeah, I'm also just drinking coffee as well. So you travel for 27 hours, or do you coming back from like the Frawmore Highlands on the moon or something? Where, where were you? What's, what's new? So I guess, yeah, this is a good point to talk about, hey, what's new? So um, I just got back from an academic conference. I was at a, it was called Militarism Feminism Conference in, uh, in Vienna, Austria. Um, so I presented some um, interesting findings from my, my master's thesis, um, it was an academic audience, so the uh, kinds of challenges that we were discussing were a little bit different than how I might present that to a wider audience. Um, it was really interesting. So I, I had picked up on this, but there's very little academic scholarship on women veterans or addressing some, particularly in social science research. So most of the research that's out there is. Um, in like journals of social work, it's more public health related. Um, and most of the research pools come from women who use the VA. So that means that if women, women veterans who don't use the VA aren't really being, at, aren't really being um, addressed. And then some of these bigger questions thinking about um, just social experiences are not really well addressed there. Plus there are also some, um, they're just women veterans are just not well represented in my particular field in academia. So it just really, really demonstrated the urgency to have veterans go into these academic spaces to ask questions that nobody else is asking. Yeah, I heard you. I heard you mention 
uh, on Twitter this weekend that the military is often misunderstood or, or not really a thought in sort of feminist academic work. Uh, I thought so that that was interesting and not something that I had considered. I wouldn't say that. It's actually quite thought about. I end up being in a very awkward space where I like have n- no natural allies because feminist academic spaces tend to be very anti-militarist. Right. Which I think when it I think comes that's what I meant, yeah criticizing the role and scope of the military and militarization of society, I think is awesome. But when it gets to the point of how dare you sully yourself by associating yourself with the military, the best thing that we can do as a social movement is tell people not marginalize people not to join. Then I think it's just silly because having been involved in the military, you know, been in the military, what ends up happening is if, you know, you don't get involved, um, the military is not going to poof be gone. Right. Tomorrow. So the best thing that we can do is have these conversations about reform. So with that, um, service to school, we're going to be in DC in uh, next week, both the COO and CEO, um, I'm the CEO, COO and I are going to be there. We're hosting a happy (laughs) hour. Um, It's technically no host. We're just really just doing an informal gathering at Bar Deco in DC, um, Wednesday, July 11th, 5.30 to 7.30 Bar Deco. Um, just come, come do a meet and greet or, you know, we're just going to grab a couple of beers and, um, learn, talk about the organization and good company. And between now and then I'll be in, you know, I'm in East Hampton visiting my dad for 4th of July. I'll be back in uh, Kinderhook and then heading down to DC. So, Roger, <laughs> what's new with you? Hello. New with me is that uh, Defense Entrepreneur Forum events are getting into full swing. Coming up on 13 July is uh, DefX DC, which is sort of this small uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, centric group of young, mid level, junior, senior officers, veterans, uh, defense civilians, and contractors who come together. Uh, to try to solve uh, some of the most wicked problems that we have in the Department of Defense, Um, Defense Entrepreneurs Forum. Um, If you are in the defense space, if you're interested in defense-related problems, if you have an idea, if you're one of those people who is a tinkerer, any tech, could be policy, you know, could be process procedure, uh, Defense Entrepreneurs Forum is really the place for you. But what we're here to talk about, Andrea, is what's going on in New York, you know, these past two weeks. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'll do a rundown of kind of a recap. of So June 26th was primary day for federal elections um, in my district, New York 19. Um, uh, Antonio Delgado won the primary. It was a seven-way Democratic primary. It was really, really close. Um, all of the candidates have um, voiced their support and, and appeared in, in public um, supporting um, Antonio. So really, really looking forward to seeing how that race plays out. Um, and we look forward to inviting both Antonio Delgado and the incumbent Republican John Faso onto the podcast um, between now and the November election. 
and their primaries all over New York State. So um, I'm sure everyone has heard by now that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez um, won in New York 19, uh, or for, excuse me, New York 14, unseating a 20-year incumbent. Uh, Leoba Gretchen Shirley in New York 2, Dana Balter in New York 24, Max Rose in New York 11, Max Delapia in New York 23, who won by 26 votes out of 21,000 cast. Um, so, you know, that means those absentee ballots were counted. Um, and they were just really record turnout. There were, in my district alone, more than twice the number of people voted in the primary than in the 2016 general. So really wow. Um, yeah, and we should we should say that this isn't the finish line. The finish line is pretty far away. So great job turning out. I would say keep up the press. We need to show up for the September statewide primaries and then obviously the November elections. So uh, West Point has its uh, first black superintendent in the 216 year history of, of the institutions. The Lieutenant General Daryl A. Williams is the 60th superintendent um, of the United States Military Academy. Um, he's a 1983 grad. Uh, even though we're both Navy, you know. We, Beat Army. Yeah, exactly. Beat, Beat Army, but uh, really excited for, uh, yeah. you know, the, for, for our colleagues at West Point. Yep. And then also going around in the state, um, a recent RAND study found that less than 3% of New York healthcare providers are fully equipped to meet veterans' needs. The problem's only going to get worse as the CHOICE program is expanded and more veterans look for medical care outside the VA. Um, I have used CHOICE once, and it was an absolute nightmare. So, um, oh, geez. Yeah, um, I'm still getting billed for something I wasn't supposed to pay for. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, in terms of what can you do if you're a veteran and you're in New York and, you know, regardless of whether you, well, obviously the VA is sort of self, uh, self-evident, but if you are using the choice program and you're seeing a doctor outside of the VA, tell your health provider that you are a veteran. A lot of the problem that Rand found is that medical providers don't think to ask that question and failing to identify service connected health ailments can impact the quality of medical care that you receive. So even if it doesn't seem like what's taking you to the doctor is related to your military service, just let your health provider know. Yes. Um, so what's going on in this nation that impacts veterans? Um, oh my God. What, what, are we- what is happening? I, it was it was just a really it was just a rough week. Um, the not not a not a but totally was Muslim ban was upheld by the Supreme Court. Collective bargaining unions were dealt a serious blow by the Supreme Court, which really really impacts our state. Um, apparently, yeah. precedents doesn't mean anything. Oh, Anthony yeah, yeah. precedents. What 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 is that? What are we previous opinions that are you know the decided law of the land? Apparently, you know can just be disregarded. The, the one that I've just been, I've been really, really devastated by, I think everyone has been devastated by family separation and, and children in cages. Yep. But just now that I'm, the fact that this is now something that we're going to do on military bases is just like. Why? It, it's one of, it, why, why, exactly. Why, why do it anywhere, but why now? 
make the military essentially complicit in the housing of what is just a, just an inhuman policy. Yeah. Um, I didn't mean to talk over you there when you said that, oh, by the way, Anthony Kennedy is retiring from the Supreme Court, uh, allowing uh, President Trump to name his successor. Uh, We'll see what happens with national Democrats, but obviously Anthony Kennedy is, quote unquote, the swing vote on the Supreme Court. Rough week. Yeah, it's just a disappointing stretch from the court. Yeah. You expect that they will uphold the Constitution in a way that recognizes uh, our, our basic common humanity. And that's just not something that they did. So Anthony Kennedy has done a lot of good things. I'm afraid that the last month has tarnished that legacy. And of course, now leaving the court at a time of great moral and constitutional uncertainty in this country yeah, I, I don't I don't know what to say. I you know wish him the best in retirement. He's had a long career, and like I said, he has done good things. But you know, we as a country have to uh, have to stand up for basic common humanity again. And uh, if the court can't do it, you know, the people have got to do it through their elected representatives. Yeah. Um. So what else is in legal? Oh, the burn pit lawsuit was thrown out. L- look, folks. Um. Not a lot of people understand really the devastating health effects that burn pits have had on a lot of people. And uh, so military veterans who claim the use of open burn pits during the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, that they've caused myriad health problems, can't move forward with dozens of lawsuits against a military contractor, um, which was ruled by a federal appeals court on Wednesday. Some some background on the burn, burn pits for our non-veteran um, listeners. So, yeah, how about the name Halliburton? Didn't bet yeah. you didn't think you'd hear that one uh, come yeah, up. Yeah, KBR Halliburton. So, um, thanks, Dick Cheney. <laughs> KBR um, would dump tires, batteries, medical, pretty much anything into these burn pits that have um, like basically caused neurological problems, cancers other health issues in the suit. Um, it's more than 800, and ser- 800 service mem- members, but um, talk to post 9-11 veterans and you'll, you'll find, I mean, our friends are dying from cancer, from like just odd cancers at very young ages or developing autoimmune diseases. I mean, last time I was in DC, I went out to dinner with a couple of other women veterans. We all had developed different autoimmune diseases that didn't run in our families. And, you know, a lot of this is anecdotal, but you're seeing this a lot. And a lot of it is about this, this chemical exposure. Um, it's just something that we really, really need to talk about because if there isn't research on it, we need that, you know, research has been defunded and it's just, it's the, um, consider the agent orange of the post nine 11 generation. Um, yeah. on, on the first of May, there's bipartisan legislation, um, HR 5671 introduced in the House to recognize toxic exposure. Um, it was introduced by Democrat Tulsi Gabbard of Hawaii and Republican Brian Mast of Florida. Um, and it's currently sitting in the subcommittee on health in the House VA and the subcommittee on military personnel in the House Armed Services Committee and has 69 co-sponsors. So, yeah, so continue to apply pressure here to yeah. your elected representatives um, to get this bill through the House. I think it's important to note that I don't want to say most people, but many people uh, are unfamiliar. They believe that 
when a bill gets introduced to the House, uh, some people are aware that it gets it gets sort of shuffled off to the appropriate committee and then subcommittee in the House. And then eventually when it gets to the Senate, it does the same thing. Uh, but what not a lot of people know is that in order for that bill to get out of committee, it has to be voted out by the full committee. But in order for that bill then to be voted on by the entire House, the Rules Committee of both the House of Representatives and the Senate has to create rules to get it to the floor and to get it on the docket for people to vote on. So there are so many hurdles that stand in the way of important legislation like this getting a full vote and getting to the desk of the president, that it is important regardless of what committee your representative or your senator sits on, they all have poll with the speaker, with the House whip, whether that's the majority or the minority whip, um, the rules committee for either chamber, uh, just apply pressure because this is something we do not want to recreate the Asian orange debacle that was uh, you know, our parents and grandparents in the uh, Vietnam War generation. So we can get this right. We just need to be loud and to continue to press alongside of the veteran service organizations who are doing this on our behalf uh, for legislation to get this legislation through the House and to the desk of the president. And then um, also the, the Capitol Gazette in Annapolis, um, there's a shooting on uh, five people who worked at the Gazette um, were killed by a lone gun- gunman. Uh, really, really devastating. They still show they and their their colleagues still showed up for work um, and put out a paper the next day. If you can, if you can swing it financially, please consider signing up for a digital subscription of the newspaper for a show of, of solidarity with. Um, with these journalists. Yeah. I, you know, we, we have in our notes here to talk about net neutrality and and we'll get to that in the next episode, but I just want to put in a plug for, this is a lot of sad news, right? We're going through a rough patch as a country, regardless of who you are, right? Uh, This stuff impacts all of us, you know, regardless of where you live, regardless of how far you are away from Washington, DC or places like Annapolis, this affects us in Syracuse. It affects us in Red Creek and Buffalo and Oneonta, right? And it is, a lot of it is tragic. You know, a lot of it is, it, it makes you want to crawl up into a ball, turn the lights off, pull the covers up and just go to sleep until it's over. But we are citizens of the United States. We do not have the luxury of, just closing our eyes and wishing that this stuff doesn't happen. I think that that is how the worst evil is sanctioned, you know, or has been sanctioned throughout history is obviously it's been said, but when good people do nothing, right? I believe strongly that there are good people in this country. And I know that we are, you know, you may be feeling tired. You may be feeling like I'm working two, three jobs to make ends meet, but now is the time when we have to dig deep we have to work together. I think there is great joy and strength in coming together and standing up to whether it's for the fourth estate, whether you're standing up for the media, whether it's bringing families together, whether it's ending uh, sort of the deportation force that we see sprung on so many uh, unsuspecting families across this country, our neighbors, even in upstate New York, I remind you, whether it's 
you know, economic tariffs that are now causing companies like Harley Davidson to move overseas. This is stuff that we can't fix. Do not. I just don't want people to feel like this is sad news and we should run away from it. Now, this is sad news, but it is in our power to make things better. And I know that coming together as we do here on this podcast and around upstate New York, you know, there is a dawn. It is coming. It might be on the horizon, but uh, Andrea, I just, I just feel like we can get there. I agree. I agree. And so with that, I think it's time for some shout outs. Hell yeah. Uh, our first shout out this episode uh, is to Major Maggie Seymour, Marine Corps reservist. Uh, she's got two awesome articles, uh, one at the Naval Institute talking about leadership and the other at uh, Inkstick, which is a great site, uh, talking about uh, nostalgia and foreign policy. We'll put them up in the show notes, but Maggie has been active writing lately, and I highly encourage you to read her writing. And uh, we'd also like to give a shout out to Chris Goldsmith, a uh, fellow member of Truman National Security Project. Um, he was part of a panel on uh, suicide on CBS. Uh, also, Major Patrick Miller, who I think it was the Buffalo News, uh, wrote about. Uh, Major Miller was injured in the Fort Hood shooting uh, a few years ago. But in the aftermath, he used giving back as sort of a means of recovering uh, from his injuries. And last year raised more than $23,000 for the Fisher House and Homes for Our Troops. Uh, this year, he's going to do it again while moving back to New York full-time for his next tour of duty at Fort Drum. He's an upstate New York native. Uh, we'll have more about him in the show notes, but we just wanted to say uh, welcome home, Patrick, and we appreciate what you do. Um, also, personal shout out here, not necessarily a veteran, but somebody who the veterans community goes to in upstate New York for, especially where I'm from, for uh, good news. Robert Harding of the Auburn Citizen I basically lived on his timeline uh, on Twitter for uh, federal primary campaign updates last Tuesday. He has and continues to produce excellent coverage of all things politics in central New York. I think he's a must follow, especially in these trying times in the fourth time when the fourth estate needs our support. Uh, he's got a new podcast coming out called Eye on New York, which focuses on central New York, federal, state and local elections. So thanks, Robert, for what you do and for letting me live rent-free uh, on, uh, on your timeline. And then finally, we've got to give a shout out to all these you campaign volunteers. Um, yes. You're the powerhouse of our democracy. Good candidates would not come out and run for office without your tireless work and support. Um, and we wouldn't really have a democracy worth fighting for if you, you know, didn't, didn't put in all this work. So keep up, keep up the press, keep up the work. Keep knocking on doors, making phone calls, get ready for, for primaries and generals in the fall. All right, Roger. Well, are we ready for our, our special guest interview? So we are very excited today to be joined by State Assembly Member Pamela Hunter of the 128th Assembly District in the New York State Assembly. Uh, we should also note that Assembly Member Hunter is our first elected official on the podcast. So that is very exciting for us. Uh, a brief bio on uh, Assemblymember Hunter. Uh, she's an upstate New York native, a U.S. Army veteran, uh, honorably discharged, received her bachelor's degree in business administration from Strayer College and uh, in human resources and computer information systems. Uh, she has a professional certification in human resources. 
And as part of her district, she represents the southern and eastern portions of the city of Syracuse, as well as the surrounding towns of DeWitt, Onondaga, Salina, and the Onondaga Nation. Prior to her election to the Assembly in 2015, Assemblymember Hunter served on the Syracuse Common Council for three years and chaired the Public Safety Committee. She's got broad uh, professional experience, having held executive positions with nonprofit organizations and professional service firms, and has served the community on various boards, including Catholic Charities, Meals on Wheels, and the Syracuse Industrial Development Agency. Pamela is the only female veteran in the state legislature. I can't, I can't believe that. Giving her unique insight as chair of the Assembly Subcommittee on Women Veterans, working to expand access to benefits and services and improve job opportunities for women who've served our country. She also serves on the Energy, Insurance, Social Services, Transportation, and Veterans Affairs Committees, and is a member of the Black and Puerto Rican legislature, legislators and women's caucuses. Uh, this year, she's authored legislation to provide assistance to tenants, protect the environment, and aid veterans in employment. She's passionate about building a better future for Central New York, and believes that good jobs, improved schools, and increased public safety will enhance quality of life and lead to stronger communities and greater success. Um, so I'll start off, uh, Assembly Member, with the first question. A uh, mutual friend of ours, Joe Driscoll, uh, cued us in on your love for boxing. So uh, I just want to know, who are your favorite boxers, and how did you uh, get into uh, boxing? Well, interestingly enough, I'm going to actually answer the, the second question first. So um, I am married to my high school sweetheart. I have known my husband, David, since I was 13 years old. Uh, he uh, and I hadn't seen him since my 16th birthday. Um, and I saw him again when I was 28. Um, he had married someone else. I had married someone else. And, you know, at 28 years old, my sister calls me and says, there's this guy looking for you. And I totally knew, you know, who it was. We had, you know, both since been divorced from our spouses, mm -hmm. but my love of boxing actually came from my husband at that time. He was, you know, my boyfriend in high school. Um, he was a golden glove champion, um, boxer. And he taught me actually how to box when I was a teenager. And so, you know, that kind of love transcended through, uh, you know, my life where I used to, you know, watch boxing when I was in the military. I used to um, have a very good friend who was an all-Army boxer, and we would talk about his matches. And, and even after I got out of the military, would always, you know, watch, watch the fights. And uh, since, you know, kind of re my reunion with my husband, we just really share that you know, passion for boxing. We go to all of the live boxing matches at the training film. <laughs> we spent all of the uh, Boxing Hall of Fame weekend at all the activities, the boxing matches, the, you know, induction ceremonies. We go to the dinner and it's just amazing because they're right in front of you. So <laughs> for people, you know, like LeBron James or, you know, they're with Venus Williams or Tiger Woods. I'm like, oh, my gosh, there's Mike Tyson and Lennox, Lennox Lewis. And <laughs> but my favorite um, boxer is uh, Marco Antonio Barrera. And if you're a boxing fan, you'll know that uh, Barrera Morales, one, two, and three were probably some of the best fights uh, of all time. <laughs> That's so awesome. That's a great story. Thanks for sharing. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about your time in the Army? Um, what motivated you to join? And um, could you share some of your experiences? 
Sure. So I graduated high school when I was 17. Um, you know, at the time, obviously, your, your parents had to sign. I was not legally old enough to, you know, enter on my own. And I actually didn't um, turn 18 until November. So because I had uh, gone to BOCES in, in New York, where, you know, your listeners are in New York, they know obviously what BOCES is, right. and had attended BOCES in 11th and 12th grade, uh, that meant I didn't have to go to AIT, the advanced training that one goes to after mm-hmm. uh, basic training. Right. So essentially, I'm 17 years old. I graduate from high school. You know, weeks later, I'm in uh, basic training at Fort Dix, New Jersey. You know, was there for the, the two months and then went straight to my um, regular duty station, my permanent duty uh, station in Fort Belvoir in Virginia. Um and, you know, that's interesting because you're 17 years old, you're basically an adult at your permanent duty station, um, all before your 18th birthday, so you can't vote. <laughs> you know, at the time you can do really anything, but you're in a grown-up, you know, situation. And, you know, I guess I always thought right out of high school I would go to college. Um, I was accepted at Johnson & Wales. You know, I was um, a food trade student at BOCES, so I thought I would be a chef. That was kind of my aspiration when I um, was in high school, and so I was actually a cook in the Army, and my brother was in the Army. He was an MP. He was stationed at, um, uh, in Anchorage, and um, you know he had then got out and went to the police force and, you know, inevitably became a federal marshal, and so I thought, you know, I'm going to college, but you know, during that time, you know, it was very difficult and, you know, the whole processing of student loans and just, it just didn't work out. And so I said, I'm just going to get out of the small town that I live and, and not look back. And that's exactly uh, what I did at 17 years old. <laughs> that is, uh, that is awesome. Uh, sounds, sounds familiar. I remember doing something like that a, a moon or two ago. Um, yeah. A lot of our uh, listeners are, uh, and me in particular, going through an active transition from uh, active duty. There was, and we're uh, talking about it today, uh, a RAND report uh, that mentioned that New York's healthcare system, only about 3% of healthcare providers are actually fully uh, capable of meeting veterans' medical needs. Um, can you talk a little bit about your own individual transition from the service and then, um, you know, ways that veterans can maybe learn from that uh, to better transition today from active duty today? You know, it's interesting because when I um, had gotten out, and obviously it's been, you know, two decades at this point that I've been out, but, um, you know, it was right when Desert Shield, Desert Storm had just begun, kind of the beginning of our 20 plus years worth of you know, conflict. Um, at that time, and I still feel a lot when I speak to a lot of veterans who are getting out, they don't want to have anything to do with military life. It's like, I want to cut the cord. I want to get out. And it's, I don't want to go to the VA unless someone needs to go. I think it takes a lot of courage actually to go to the VA once you get out, especially if you don't feel like you need it because it's like, that's the path. I'm trying to run away from something that was a part of your life that you're ingrained. And so when I got out of the military, it was in the Washington DC area. And you have to, you know, know that that is military retiree 
capital of the universe. You know, right. there's all of yeah. those different spaces around Washington, D.C. Many of the people who live in around there are transplants and have been stationed there. And then they, you know, either, either retire or get out and stay there. And so there's this kind of universe that, um, that ties you together that you were all in the military, but none of you are like really doing anything relating to um, helping those folks who were in the military, unless, you know, that's your actual professional capacity. And so, you know, I really felt when I got out, it's time for me to get out, you know, I'm ready to get out. And then you're just on your own. Like, you know, you are so used to, this is your job. This is when you get up. This is where you're supposed to be. This is, you know, the, the plan for the day. And there's a group of people with you all of the time <laughs> that when you're out, you're alone. And even if you're around your spouse or a family member or whatnot, you're alone. And it's like, how do I manage as a civilian? How do I be just a regular person in this world where I speak differently than everybody else speaks? You know, everybody's calls each other by their first name. No one calls you by their last name. You know, it's just those little kind of nuances that you forget I'm Pam and you are, you know, specialist Meyer. You know, it's there's a way in which you have to transition back. And there is no piece of paper that they give you when you get out and say, okay, these are now to transition back. This is, you know, how it works. And I think it's very difficult for people. I know that, you know, there's high suicide rates you know, for people who have, you know, transitioned out, um, mm-hmm. that, you know, sometimes that there's a lot of PTSD, uh, sometimes there's just like a lot of homelessness, joblessness, because people don't know how to find their way. And I think one of the biggest, you know, issues is asking for help. I mean, I was in a situation where my husband was still in and I had friends who had gotten out. So I kind of had a close kind of circle, I never went to the VA, never got a, you know, ID card. It was like it never happened. I never was part of the American Legion, never, you know, was part of any kind of organizations that helped or supported veterans when they got out. And, you know, really, as I had gotten older, you know, and and seen, you know, now if people are thanking you for your service, now, you know, people are, you know, waking up and saying, oh, people, there's veterans and people were doing this work to, you know, to help and, you know, um, uh, protect my, my freedoms and liberties where all of a sudden now we're all kind of lumped in together. <laughs> but some of those transition issues have still not changed. And I feel that that's why, you know, it's very important, especially as I work with women veterans, to be able to acknowledge and reach back and do that. Because, you know, in addition to military sexual trauma, there's definitely other issues that affect veterans, especially women veterans, that have to do with, like, homelessness and joblessness and how do they, you know, function if they have PTSD and daycare. And all of a sudden you're back into this universe that you were kind of snatch from, and, you know, obviously you're a volunteer, but, you know, snatch from in a way, thrown back in, and how do you, how do you live as a, a, a civilian? Um, so, you know, thinking about, thinking about those, those complex issues, um, and perhaps thinking about policy, how did you get your start in policy, politics, and what made you decide to run for office? Um, you know, it's interesting because even today, I would say, I would know that it was never a plan for me to be here. It's not like I come from a political family or that we were ingrained in a machine, you know, of politics that, 
Um, it got to be that I uh, was looking for a volunteer opportunity. I wanted to be more involved in my community. And um, the, the Democratic uh, Committee actually was one that was welcoming and reached out to me. And I thought, you know, this is kind of exciting. These people help in shape policy. Um, you know, the things that they're doing and decisions that they're making impact my life. And, you know, it'd be cool to be kind of a part of that. Interestingly enough, the very first volunteer um, campaign that I actually witnessed uh, was the assemblywoman whose seat I actually am in right now. And I never would have, you know, correlated that day going into her campaign office to, you know, 10 years later, actually being in that seat. It's kind of, it's still a little bit surreal, but you know, it was being able to be a part of my community. Um, and people do that in lots of different ways when you're feeding the homeless or, you know, being on boards of not-for-profits. And I've done all of that. Um, but this to me was, you know, very important because it's basically helping to contribute to, to create laws and identify resources that helps, you know, at the grassroots level people in the community. And so I happened upon it and I became an active part helped on campaigns, helped people fundraise, and, you know, was on time, present, you know, able. And, you know, uh, I think that being and doing all of those things on a constant basis, people see you, see your skills, see your ability. And uh, when an opportunity presented itself when I was on the city council, I was prepared, you know, obviously having known how the process worked, I was prepared for the opportunity, and, and that's how it started. That is awesome. Um, I think one of the things we mentioned uh, as part of your bio is that you're the only woman veteran in the state assembly. Um, I'm just wondering, you know, have you faced any hurdles, you know, since you've gotten out of the military and, and started this career in politics because you are a black woman uh, veteran? Um, and if you've experienced those, we know that a lot of our listeners do. How do we help others overcome those hurdles, uh, whether, you know, that's as friends, as policymakers, or just, you know, concerned citizens? Yeah, it's interesting because you had made mention um, the only uh, female uh, veteran in the assembly. It's actually in the whole state legislature. So there's not even a female veteran oh, in the Senate, obviously, yeah. and the, the governor is a veteran either. So right. of the 165 assembly members in the the 63 senators in all of the states of New York, it's, it's just me. And, you know, interestingly, I, I always stop it and then think, especially when I see the, the West Point cadets come in every year to the chamber and we stand up and I always get a good opportunity to give the good jab, go Army, beat Navy. And, you know, <laughs> last, last couple of years we were able to pull it out. But, you know, I see some of the, the women uh, cadets um, stand up and I'm like, you, you know, you could be here. Anybody could be here. And I don't know if it's like a recruitment issue or, you know, people haven't found their way to politics, you know, as I have done. I know in other states, it's not just me, but I mean, women represent 10% of the overall, you know, veteran population. And, you know, there's, I believe, 60,000 women veterans in New York state. So, yeah. you know, one of 60,000, and I don't know if, you know, what the makeup between races are between that. But, you know, that's kind of an honor to be able to do that. But um, I think just with lives happening, sometimes people don't find their way to politics. Um, but it's interesting because in the assembly, 
Um, there are many members who are from New York City, so that there is a good diversity of people. There's definitely not diversity outside of uh, New York City. So aside from myself, Crystal People Stokes in Buffalo and, and David Gate in Rochester, we make up the diversity uh, that is outside New York City. And there are a few members uh, in Long Island that are people of color. And so then when you, you know, take away those few, then I'm the only, you know, obviously veteran. Um, it is an honor to be able to, um, you know, have that credential. And I think that especially in places outside the city where sometimes it's rural, um, sometimes it's not as progressive. And a lot of times people like to use that word progressive, but, um, it's slower in upstate New York and central New York and western New York than it is in New York City. I found that when I moved here from the Washington, D.C. area, I was like, oh, my gosh, it's like going backwards in time almost. And <laughs> I think being able to be a veteran um, as a black female is helpful in this district because I think without that credential, I think it would be harder um, because veterans are beloved um, in in around uh, upstate New York where, you know, it might feel, not that they don't in New York City, but it's different. You know, you can relate to Johnny down the street, you know, has gone to Afghanistan and he's on, you know, four, four tours. People understand that because it's relatable to the, the picket fence in the house next door where the hustle and bustle of D.C. or, excuse me, New York City, that might be a little bit different. So I think that's helpful, actually, for me, that credential um, and that history. But, you know, in some ways, knowing that I can go into one of the towns I represent and people will look at me like, why are you here? Yeah. You know, that still happens. We're in 2018, in the middle of 2018, and people are like, why is this black woman here? It's amazing to me that even where we are right now, and I'm like, I represent you. And even if you didn't vote for me, I still represent you. It's just the thought that we're still in kind of that space. Um, but I think, you know, having been in the military and being able to, you know, speak to my experience, that resonates to people um, who care about the country and who care about, you know, what's going on around the globe. Um, and I think that that helps, that definitely helps in the way I'm able to craft legislation, but it helps being uh, able to provide good constituent service. Whereas if I was kind of just a civilian running around in one of my towns, I think it would be more difficult, quite frankly. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really interesting point about how being a veteran can, um, you know, help, help be a, a bridge builder and something that we've talked about a lot Yep. On this podcast is, um, you know, we're excited that there's so many veterans running for office, um, including some of our friends, um, particularly for Congress, but something that we're passionate about. And one of the reasons we run this podcast is because we're uh, passionate about state and local politics. So how do we get more veterans engaged in state and local politics? Well, you know, obviously the first thing I tell people is you need to register to vote. And, you know, while it's, you know, important to be a registered voter, you know, party affiliation obviously means something to people. And, and some people don't know and they're not affiliated. And I think 
not choosing a party in some ways is good because it, you know, leaves it open and, you know, you get a lot more outreach from people who are trying to let you know what their message is. But to me, step one is obviously registering to vote. And I think another thing that is really important, you know, is understanding what's going on in your community, because if you're not really tapped into your community, finding your way to politics is, is going to be almost non-existent or impossible because something happens along the way. And especially those who I have found have been, you know, successful in doing this legislative work have been part of their community. So instead of people thinking that you're preaching to them or, you know, you're being condescending and you think, you know, the answer because you're running for office, you have lived and walked in their shoes. So, you know, having been a part of the community, you know, what, what you need, whether it's, I know we need more resources for schools or bridges or roads or, you know, even at the municipal level, how many police officers do we need? Do we need, you know, more garbage pickup or less? You know, how do we take care of, you know, the pension benefits for retirees? And being able to understand how that works, but understanding how, you know, each one of those decisions affects the quality of life for people in that community, I think, you know, makes you a better politician as civil servant, public, you know, service leader or whatnot. But I think if you don't have that experience, um, running for office makes it more difficult. So that's one of the things that I would tell any veteran is vote and be an active part of your community. Um, because I think that way more people will know you and more people who know you are also voters, but you're, you're knowledgeable about what you're talking about. You're not just you know, saying things that you think people will want to hear, you're being genuine because you have walked in their shoes. And I think the jump from having been in the military and not wanting to kind of affiliate with the military, as I kind of talked about before, and then all of a sudden you're immersed into your community, sometimes it seems like a huge leap. Um, but it could be some, it could start with something so simple as, I'm going to volunteer for Meals on Wheels, and if I just do it once a week, delivering food to, you know, the homebound who can't get out, that's a step, you know, kind of in the right direction. And so it doesn't seem like a huge leap for some, you know, people to all of a sudden, I'm running for office and nobody knows who you are, which always makes it uh, much, much more difficult. And that is great advice. And I, I wish I could put that on a billboard, you know, out of, outside of every uh, military base uh, in, in the world. Uh, uh, registering to vote, I think, is a good segue, especially in light of the federal primaries in New York, which are on Tuesday. Um, we have seen it play out time and time again, and especially on Tuesday, um, in the Democratic Party specifically, that when women of color are leaders and influencers in campaigns and movements, those end up being the most successful, I think, on the whole. How can we make sure that our best foot is always forward and women of color in leadership and advocacy positions are the rule and not the exception? Yeah, you know, I I feel like you, you would hear that kind of African proverb and a, and a lot of people, you know, would attribute it to Hillary Clinton, but it really, you know, is from her, it's, you know, about it takes a village. And, you know, in some ways it really does because it's my responsibility as a woman leader um, and not necessarily as an elected official, but if someone is in a leadership 
capacity, whether they're a manager at Burger King or if they are, you know, maybe a program director at a not-for-profit or their executive director or an executive. It's your duty as a woman leader to bring people along with you. And I think that that's one of the most kind of important things to think of as a, you know, black woman leader is it's supposed to be kind of this chain where someone's pulling me and I'm pulling somebody with me, Um, you know, that we're bound together and that we're going on this journey, you know, together. And it doesn't work if I think it should only be me. It's all about me. I have to bring other young people, other people other interested people along with me and provide them, you know, spaces and opportunities for them to be able to grow so that there are other people who look like me from the community who are in, you know, spaces to run. So in the city of Syracuse, you know, we obviously have our, you know, president of the city council, uh, who is a, you know, black woman. Um, we have had um, the president of the city council in the past. It was a Latina woman. We have, you know, a woman city councilor who is a black woman, a, a male black, um, a black man who is a, a city councilor, you know, our deputy mayor who was uh, appointed by the mayor who is a black woman. So, uh, these are all things, but these are all not people who just woke up yesterday and are like, oh, you know, I want to be in the position they've been in the community. People know them. And it took someone to bring them along in order for them to get into positions that they are. People brought me along. I wouldn't be in the position I'm in if I just showed up and said, I'm here, but for me, someone has to, you know, bring you along. And I think that's one of the, you know, kind of cornerstones as far as leadership is concerned, regardless of your race, but especially, you know, to my heart as a black woman, it's my, you know, duty to be able to bring other people along with me and provide and show them opportunities where they can fit in, in order for them to be a have a seat at the table, a part of the process, a part of the, you know, the game so that they can um, step forward uh, when the opportunities present themselves. Yeah. I, uh, I think that's spot on. And uh, especially me as a, as a white guy veteran, I think it's also our duty, you know, on, on my side of the house here, people who look like me to bring people along who don't look like me. Um, Yep to reach out and make sure that everybody has not just a seat at the table, but an equal voice uh, at the table. Yeah. I think that's, that's really important. You know, I just, I just, I just want to add because I, I feel like, especially in our current troubled times that we cannot be in a position to disregard those people who have helped and shaped and partnered with so many to move things forward. And in some ways, I think, you know, like I talked before, you know, when I moved here, I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going backwards in time. But I don't, I don't think that we are doing a good service of being kind and, um, you know, thoughtful as we move forward to disregard the people who, you know, help us get to, you know, some of the places that we are. And, you know, I think that it's unfortunate and you had made mention, you know, especially as a, as a white gentleman, and I think as a human, you know, I think that we are not giving people kind of their just deserves as, 
you know, we're, we're talking about you helping. I mean, you have an opportunity, you, um, you know, in the space to be able to provide, you know, a podcast and an opportunity for people to talk and, it shouldn't always have to be pointed out that, hey, look, I'm a, you know, white guy helping someone, you know, giving them a platform. But I do feel like people need to appreciate the fact that there are lots of people out there supporting lots of different things in the community. And sometimes we're always so quick to point out, um, you know, I'm black and I'm helping blacks and, you know, that we're forgetting the narrative that, you know, there are many people, whether they were Jews or, or you know, different, different uh uh, nationalities that help pave the way for many different people. And I, I just don't feel like we should forget that. I, I feel like sometimes that we're kind of in this uh, separation state right now, and we can't forget the people who genuinely are, are wishing to help, you know, everyone move forward. Yeah, some would say that that diversity is what makes America great and that, you know, we've been great for a long time now because of it. <laughs> But uh, not dwelling too long on that one uh, and switching gears a little bit, but along the lines of, you know, bringing other people along. You know, we, we talked about this before we went live, but uh, it strikes me that we're living in probably the most technologically promising time in the world. You know, that's why we are able to have this podcast and have it reach so many people. One of my colleagues recently mentioned, though, that, you know, the future is here but it isn't evenly distributed. How do we combat things like poverty, especially in central New York, where, you know, unfortunately we have some of the worst poverty in the country. How do we, how do we combat poverty given all the tools we seem to have at our disposal? And, And is there a difference, you know, in what we can do as citizens and maybe what folks like you can do, uh, from a policymaking standpoint? Well, you know, especially for me, knowing that, um, you know, numbers don't lie. We can manipulate them and, you know, extrapolate. But, you know, in central New York, in Syracuse, uh, I do represent the highest concentration of people for people of color in poverty in the entire country. And I believe in the country we're like the 13th most impoverished. So, right. you know, those numbers don't lie. And that, that didn't just happen yesterday. This is talking about generational poverty. And that's come from a lot of different things. It's come from, you know, large manufacturers going away, those jobs, you know, depleting, um, the aging out of a workforce, you know, not tending and taking good care of identifying blight that's happening, you know, in the city. And so all of a sudden it seems like it sneaks up upon you when it's been here and we haven't been paying attention you know, to that all of a sudden. So that's something that, you know, obviously – it's, it's knocking at our doorstep and it not only affects, you know, people's livelihoods, whether, you know, I'm able to pay the rent, you know, and or the mortgage, but it affects learning in an academic setting and um, being able to, to prosper. And so, you know, as we're kind of talking about technology and poverty, you know, one of the things that uh, we have been trying to work on, especially in the state that makes this so very difficult, is, you know, access to broadband. So some people might think that, you you know, it's taken for granted that everyone has a cell phone, that they just easily can just jump on and, and you know, be able to just use their kind of iPhone or smartphone or, you know, I'm an Android, but, you know, really an almost a necessity in life to be able to have access 
uh, to technology because maybe you need to check your uh, child's homework and the only way to do it is to go on the school district's portal to check their grades. Well, you need internet to be able to do that. Many opportunities where people are trying to find jobs, um, they need to be able to get online to access their employment applications. You need internet to be able to do that. Say you have a resume and it's all typed up and ready to go and by some chance you were able to actually get it in a Word document, um, you've still got to email it to an employer. And so sometimes we take those things for granted, but there are many people in this urban setting and actually rural who don't have access to broadband, who can't do simple things like, I want to apply for a job. So when we're like, oh, there's so many people who are unemployed, are we doing the best we can do to provide the services that they need in order to, you know, apply for a job? So instead of thinking that people just don't want to work, they don't have capacity. If you go to today's library, you will see the most things that people do in the library. They're not sitting around reading hardcover books. They're at the computers in the public library because that's the only way that they're able to apply for a job or correspond with family, you know, because maybe they don't have a phone. So as far as technology, it's great in some ways, but because we've moved so far, we haven't brought everyone with us. That is an ex a, a specific example of how poverty and technological, you know, advances are so very far apart. Yeah, I, uh, I'm reminded of, you know, one of the worst tropes that keeps evolving over time is, you know, well, if you have an iPhone, you're not poor, right? Why should, why should poor people have iPhones, right? It's the same thing that, mm -hmm. you know, folks said about, oh, if you have a TV, you're not poor. And if right. you have a car, you're not poor. And I think what people okay. forget is that those items are so ingrained in what it means to be successful and to have access to opportunity in our society that yeah. if you don't have them, you are cutting out so much opportunity and essentially dooming people. Yeah. Just, that just reminded me of that. I'll step off my soapbox here. <laughs> so it, it certainly seems that a really big theme of, of today's discussion with you is, you know, talking about bringing other people along. And so thinking about that, what, what's next for Central New York and what are some of the important issues that citizens and especially veterans can really roll up their sleeves and get to work on alongside you? Um, I think, you know, at my level, I mean, there's always things from a local perspective that, you know, we need to watch out for because, you know, all politics is local and that means, you know, uh, as you go out your door, is your garbage going to be picked up? Or when you call 911, is the police or fire going to come? You know, is, are the roads going to be done? But, you know, all of that obviously comes from resources that come outside, mostly from uh, your local municipality that comes from either the state or the federal government. Um, obviously, like in the city of Syracuse, you know, more than 80% of the the funding for public schools comes from the state. So being able to, you know, be in tune with where resources coming from, you know, to your municipality and what's important to you. Everybody's got a, something that's important. And I think, you know, whether a veteran comes out and says, you know, I only care about X, whatever the X is, that's your passion. And, you know, you should be able to kind of like, let that be your driver because it will expand to, you know, something else. So whether it's, 
their thing is about, you know, housing because maybe they're homeless or they're living in substandard situation. Let that drive you as to finding out, you know, what resources and what is lacking, you know, relative to legislation to make it, you know, where so many people are living, you know, maybe in, in squalor or, or places that aren't, you know, good spaces for people to live. And similarly, maybe it's about employment. Maybe there's not enough opportunities. What do we need to do to advocate and support more uh, employment for veterans? Or maybe it's health care. You know, everyone, you know, it doesn't have access to unlimited VA health care. And maybe they don't have access either to, you know, opportunities to have, you know, Medicaid. And so they're going, you know, through their life <clears throat> not being underinsured. Well, maybe healthcare is their biggest issue. So advocating, you know, for different kind of expansion on healthcare. There's something that each one of us is interested in that drives us. And maybe we don't even think about it relative to politics or legislation, but obviously legislation and policy, you know, impact um, how resources are, are, you know, given back to municipalities and how it affects your life. So I, you know, I think Sometimes people think about it in a grand space, but if you just whittle it down to what's important for you today, that's how you can get more people actively engaged because they're actually um, uh, activated based on something that they're passionate about. And usually it's always because they have something to do that impacts their own personal life. Well, thank you. And I think that's something that's going to resonate with a, with a lot of our audience in, in that, you know, when there's, there's so many challenges, there's always somewhere where, um, we can really use our passions and our, our commitment to being service leaders to get involved just in our, in our towns and in our communities and, and, and helping one another you know, move forward. Um, so Roger, do you have any other questions? Cause, um, I've, I'm going to ask our, our last one that we ask everybody. No, I wish we could talk to the assemblywoman like all day. This is, I know. <laughs> this has been really, uh, this has been really wonderful, um, Assembly Member Hunter. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, now we, we, we're going to ask you the question we ask everyone. So um, New York State, we're proud to have a lot of great, um, I think it's fair to say that we're a foodie state. Um, we've got a lot of lo- great local food and beverages. Um, Roger and I have an ongoing feud about who has the best ice cream. It's, um, it's, it's burned dairy. It's burned dairy. It's Stewart. Um, so on that note, um, could you share with us one of your favorite local food or beverages? Oh, food or beverages. Oh, wow. That's interesting. I don't think it's a specific thing, but we have so much. Um, if you think about like the different craft beers that we have in Syracuse, New York, we have Gannon's ice cream. Um, we have so many, uh, restaurants that are not chains and not that chains are bad because obviously local people own them, but I frequent uh, very often establishments in uh, the Westcott Nation in the city of Syracuse. And they have, they're all um, local restaurant owners who people who literally live in the neighborhood and they might have their specialty burgers like a beer belly where their burgers are phenomenal. I don't know what they, they do with that meat, but they're phenomenal. Um, <laughs> to be able then to go to munches across the street and for them to hand roll the grape leaves um, because that's, you know, the recipe that they've had from, you know, that's uh, carried down from their family. 
uh, to local watering hole at TAP where, you know, everybody is known by their first name because you're, you know, a local and a, a usual customer. So that to me um, means community more than any individual food is being able to know that in uh, the neighborhood and in the spaces that I go to, we have just the privilege really of having so much local fare that we can, you know, argue about Stewart's and Burn Dairy and Gannon ice cream, obviously that's down in the Valley in the city. <laughs> well, uh, Assemblywoman Hunter, thank you so, so much for joining us uh, today. It's a real honor on our part to be able to talk with you. Um, we need to let you get going so that you can continue to kick ass and uh, take names, uh, <laughs> assembly. So thank you very much. This was awesome. Um, it was my pleasure really to be helpful and supportive, you know, to you, to entrepreneurs. And um, there obviously is anything that I can ever continue to be supportive of. Please, you know, feel free to let me know. And, you know, obviously the 135,000 people that I represent, you know, obviously I work, try to work really hard every day to try to, you know, make decisions that positively impact uh, their life, but really, regardless if people voted for me or not, or even know my name or or know who I am, you know, I'm actively, you know, fighting for them and and knowing that you all both who don't live in my district, hoping that you're you're advocating and supporting and asking for those people who represent you to be doing that, you know, very same thing. And if you don't know who they are, you should call them and and make sure you get to know who your local uh, representatives are. Damn right. Assemblywoman Hunter, thanks so much. I uh, look forward to talking to you again soon. Very good. Thank you guys so much. Enjoy your day. Thank you. You too. All right, Andrea. So uh, what's next? What's next for you? Uh, are you traveling a lot? Are you doing any more uh, marathon full day travel sessions? I think I at least have a solid three weeks before I change time zones again. Um, I am in... Um, so this week for the holiday, I'm visiting my dad in the Hamptons. Um, my dad I should also mention, so my dad is originally from Buffalo and where I am sitting, I can see no less than five Buffalo themed pieces of furniture. Wow. Um, which is also exciting because the New York times published at 36 hours in Buffalo, like Buffalo is cool. Again, Buffalo is always cool. Buffalo is always cool. Kids Buffalo's always cool. Um, although the article plugs the anchor bar for wings and, um, if for our listeners, if you're in Buffalo, you should go to Duff's, Duff's. the dive, dive that makes the best wings. Yep. Um, what else is new? I'm heading back to Kinderhook this weekend, DC next week, you know, really all over the place, you know, doing stuff for service to school and, and, you know, trying to, trying to keep up the writing. And, um, I'm also really excited to say that I'm going to an erasure concert in New York city on July 14th. Um, they are an amazing, ridiculous 80 synth pop band. And I have been dying to see them in person for about 15 years so um that is happening and the fourth of july is wednesday everyone so happy birthday america i will be participating in my i always watch 1776 first thing fourth of july <laughs> uh i i have no shame it is the the 1970s movie version is terrific um so happy birthday america roger what about you 
Happy birthday, America, indeed, man. I am looking forward to boring the crap out of my wife and uh, soon-to-be one-year-old child. Uh, every year I read the Declaration of Independence just because I think it's a fascinating document, and I'm a huge nerd. So both of those things marry up uh, pretty nicely, but we're looking forward to having family in town. Uh, our daughter is turning one years old this Saturday, so obviously we're having a party. You know, the local families, uh, our folks, uh, siblings coming into town. Don't worry. The theme of the party is unicorns. So my house looks uh, fabulous, I guess you would say. Um, and we're really looking forward to having a great time. It's already ridiculous around here, but it should be a really great time. Uh, also looking forward, Andrea, to our next podcast where we might be in the same place at the same time. So I have some extra nine pin cider saved in my fridge from my last trip upstate. So uh, I guess steal, steal yourself for my cold pressed apples. Uh, Awesome. I got some for you, but well, with that, uh, thanks for listening. Thanks again to uh, state Assemblywoman uh, Pam Hunter for coming on the show. Keep organizing, keep working, register to vote and keep up the press on your elected representatives. So with that, we will see you next time.